0: You're listening to Fundshack, the podcast, episode one. I'm Ross Butler, and I'm going to be speaking today with Naoki Ota, Managing Director at Bearings Alternative Investments. We're going to be speaking about private equity secondaries mainly. The practice of trading LP stakes in 10-year private equity vehicles has gone from relatively niche 10 or 15 years ago to an everyday mainstream portfolio management technique today. I also want to know about Bering's specific approach to secondaries and whether its primary focus on real assets helps give it an edge. Let's find out. No Kyoto, welcome to Fun Shack.
1: Ross Butler, thanks very much for inviting me. A pleasure to be here.
0: So you've been at Bering's a couple of years now, and before that you were at GP Advisors in Green Park Capital.
1: That's right, and, uh, and many moons before that, KPMG. So uh, it's been an interesting ride, Ross. So you know your private equity secondaries... I do know my private equity secondaries and that's something I've been doing since 2005. So, you know, it's part of a core part of my activity since I joined Bearings in January 2017 to really establish, spearhead and build an investing programme for
0: secondaries and the funds and co-investments team. The secondaries market has grown hugely. I mean, private equity has in general, but also within that, the secondaries market has grown a lot in recent years. So you must have seen quite a few changes. So I wanted to start by a quick analysis of theory versus reality, because the secondaries as a sub-asset class has a number of textbook advantages. So they might be, you know, transparency, you're not investing in a blind pool and putting your money to work quickly, buying at a discount. To what extent are these advertised advantages applicable to today's market?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think that's a great point, Ross, you know, so, all the things you mentioned, the traditional advantages, so, what are you getting over and above a normal blind pool private equity fund? generally speaking, you're buying assets which are mature, so you're getting you know sixty seventy percent visibility you know you're buying into funds you're buying into g p led, so you're buying assets you're reducing blind pool risk, and you can diligence your manager up front. You know what else can you do? you know you're potentially getting near term cash flows you know, you're coming in fundamentally at a different point to the original investor. So you should be nearer to your um, end uh, cash intakes. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, I think the market today is still, you know, advertising what it used to offer. Now, buying at a discount, you know, this current market is a difficult one. You know, I think you only have to read the general sort of industry reports to know that discounts, you know, have been minimal if not people are paying premiums for blue chip names so you're only getting discounts if there is a reason for the discount which could be to do with the vintage of the underlying asset could be something to do with the gp it could be something to do with the underlying um actual assets themselves so you know there are episodic reasons and each fund gets priced separately so you know but what's different now compared to say 2005 you know when you know first started doing secondaries number one the market's completely different you know those days I think deal f- annual deal flow probably single digit billions you know last year you know we're talking somewhere north of 70 billion by all accounts from the various advisors that we see so what's changed you know there are far more choices in terms of um, strategies so people you know are doing different things like for example doing LP interest trades only or GP you know, uh, led transactions only, you know, some people concentrate on P, some people do the sub strategies like VC, infra, you know, um, real assets. So I think there's a real difference in strategy uh, in terms of the underlying um, buying community and the secondary funds in particular. Um, And also there's a huge variation now in terms of size of the funds. So you have you know, big guys who are, you know, raised trying to raise double digit billion funds. And you get the smaller end of the market who are raising, uh, you know, sort of 100 million, you know, or sub 500 million funds and they play in a fundamentally different place. So I think as the market's matured, the range of strategies, you know, the size of the funds and how they go about investing has
0: changed enormously. So there's been an explosion of um, different kind of niche funds in the secondary market. What's what's brought it about? I mean, that's a very short space of time, you know, 15 years from you said single digit billions to 70 billion a year. I mean, what's is that has there been a kind of a change in mindset, in culture, in appetite?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely been a change in the mindset, you know, when secondaries first started, um, sort of, I think, late 90s, you know, that was really a market for distressed VC sellers. And it was a little bit of a dirty market, quite frankly, where it was only for distressed sellers. People didn't want to know that, you know, I'm selling a piece because I'm in trouble. That's what really the connotation was. And I think really sort of the mid 2000s, sort of in the run up to the GFC was really the time period where the market started to mature. People started thinking, oh, this could be a liquidity solution for my private equity portfolio, which was beginning to grow in number both by GP, the number of funds, my team hasn't grown, the admin burden is enormous. So we had, um, for example, you know, Calper's, I think the first one billion sale and that was a little bit of a landmark because people started realizing, oh, it's not a distressed market, you know, I can use this to actually get liquidity for my portfolio. So I think that's a big mindset change. And so LPs started using it to manage their portfolio GPs realize it's actually not a bad thing for your LPs to turn over because in a uh, closed ended fund, you know, this is the only way that you can get liquidity in, um, you know, to liquidate your Mm. LP position. Now, I think recently the real development has been the GP led secondary space where, um, you know, in terms of providing solution for LPs, now it's turned into let's provide a solution for the
0: GPs. Is this really new? I, I don't I don't think I'd ever heard of it until a few years ago. Is it something that's a, a real innovation in the market or is it just more talked about?
1: No, it's a, definitely a growing feature, which is now, I think, here to stay. So in you know, a pre-financial crisis, there was a period of time where we had what was called secondary direct. So this was a lot of the times like VC incubators from corporates being spun out uh, with um, GPs being parachuted in um, or you know you had some tail end VC funds which needed a liquidity solution and I think those are kind of the forerunners to the GP led transactions today where it's gone one step further which is you know GPs proactively taking action to really deal with things like what happens when my fund comes to an end you know let's proactively provide a solution to LPs and this is now morphed into you know single asset GP secondaries where GPs are saying, well, you know what, I have some really good portfolio companies. I don't think it's the right time to sell because we can do more with it. So, you know, if we can find a market price, you know, that's market tested, we can roll over and find a new group of LPs, you know, who are willing to stay with the ride for longer. So I think in the ever morphing, ever flexible and solution finding secondaries land, you know, this is kind of the latest, you know, sort of major step. And, you know, just to give you a sense, I think, you know, roughly one third of last year's deal flow volume was in GP led secondaries, which is an explosion when you compare it to the size it was five years ago.
0: So you've got LPs becoming comfortable, then you've got GPs becoming comfortable. My general perception is that the private equity model didn't change for years and years and years and then suddenly people are really starting to experiment more in all sorts of ways with the the fund structure so you're getting people raising long term capital and partnership funds i saw a tweet from hg capital this morning saying that they'd they've owned visma for 12 years and they want to earn it for own it for much longer and i just feel like there's people are becoming much more comfortable with creativity around the private equity fund structure but that must come with a certain level of discomfort i mean it must become more complex just being an lp these days you don't just invest your money and and then wait for it to come back to you oh uh,
1: look i think that's definitely true so you know part of as well as doing secondaries you know i also look at primary investing as an lp we also do co-investments and so in particular when we are looking at funds on a primary basis you know the structures that managers are proposing the different types of strategies, you know, are becoming ever more um, sort of wider and more um, creative, as you say. So, for example, you know, some asset classes lend itself more to longer life funds. So some infrastructure funds and they're coming out with 15 years, 25 years open ended um, in for what is really a private markets asset class you know with sort of redemption features or liquidity features so that you're not forced to then you know go to the secondary market as an LP so you know people are trying to find better ways to match i guess you know asset duration of the underlying um you know investments to the fund life so that you don't get a situation where you know you have a 10-year fund holding a long-term asset and it's being forced to sell so you know I, i agree with you that uh, you know it's becoming more complicated and you got to match kind of what you want to do with finding an investment opportunity which matches up well.
0: It must be throwing up all sorts of new conflicts complexities and conflicts of interest so I saw you mentioned GP led Mm -hmm. secondaries I saw that ILPA came out with some new guidance in the last week or so with regards to (coughs) what they think are decent standards for GPs to what what, what are your thoughts on on that kind of initiative or that initiative in in particular?
1: Well, I think GP leads inherently are conflicted. The GPs themselves are conflicted because if you're managing something, you know, before and after, then, you know, inherently you have conflicts. In terms of what's the right sale price or what's the right in price, you know, depending on the seller or the buyer, but also the GP usually has some form of vested interest in terms of its own economics. So, um, when I look at GP-led transactions, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I look for and try and make sure I understand front up is why is the GP doing it? You know, that's I think absolutely critical, and if it's Clear to me that what the GP is seeking to do is, you know, nakedly, somewhat egregiously in its own interest, then that's usually a reason to walk away. Um, Whereas if there is a logical reason to doing something and, you know, there is a general benefit which spreads across the sellers and the buyers and the GP, then I think it's a balanced transaction which has, you know,
0: which is worth looking at. So what are the attractions of investing in private equity real assets, both perhaps from a primary as well as a secondary perspective vis-a-vis more traditional corporate buyouts? Yeah, sure. So I think
1: if you think about on the primary basis, you know, why do we invest into real assets? You know, this there's, there's generally less correlation. You're taking a um, different risk-reward uh, to buying into um, corporates. So it's the, um whilst, you know, there's always going to be sort of some matching or, you know, you have sort of things like the GFC, um, we believe that fundamentally, you know, you can get different risk-reward to just uh, investing into um, private equity. Now, to your specific question on the secondary side, um, or why do we want to look at real assets, secondaries in particular? So it's really twofold. You know, we've built up a, you know, good portfolio of, real assets on a primary basis both across infrastructure and natural resources. And so that naturally um, throws off some good deal flow um, and sponsor relationships that we can go and leverage. Um, so on top of that, real asset secondaries compared to corporates on the buyout side is you know less competitive. Um, you know, the buyout side, um, as you, you and I both know, have been a hot market. Um, you know pricing has been toppy whereas I think there's generally less competition in the real asset space where we believe you can get a um, better risk um, reward um, outcomes and lastly i think it's to do with um, sort of our firm as a whole where it's not just our team and you know some of my fellow team members who have domain expertise and some of the real asset spaces we have, for example, a public equities team that specialises in natural resources, um, so we can go and also leverage their knowledge. Or we have an infrared team, so we can go and talk to them as well about, you know, certain types of sub-asset classes within infrastructure. So, you know, we have a large, um, you know, we're a large corporate. We have 2,000 people across the globe. And sort of that breadth reach into um, the various parts of the asset management universe provides us, I think, with a unique cutting edge.
0: So you're not just looking at a
1: spreadsheet you have the people on the ground that understand the assets as well no absolutely and also the, who look across you know different parts of the capital structure as well so we get a unique view into the various parts of um, sort of the universe of real assets and what are
0: the how does that differ in terms of your, your day job the analysis with the, uh, of the opportunities in the by, by way of kind of real assets versus more traditional buyouts yeah so
1: it, it's definitely different um, you know if you look at for example, natural resources funds, you know, um, depending on whether the underlying assets are, you know, you can have say oil and gas, you can have metals and mining, you can have timber. You know, they all have very different dynamics. So, you know, what's actually really powerful about the platform that we have is, you know, within our team we have people who have expertise in, um, in particular, metals and mining, oil and gas, in infrastructure, which, um, you know. I can go and leverage on top of my own knowledge, but also as an institution, um, we have, for example, um, natural resources specialists within the public equities team. You know, we have people, for example, who sit in the infrared team. So they see different parts of the market, which we can go and leverage their um, specialist knowledge as well. So in terms of what's different from my sort of day job, uh, you know, if I'm, well, what's different, say, looking at corporates on the private equity side, you know, they're it's definitely one where you need more specialist domain knowledge, and where it's great to be able to engage the wider firm to go and, uh,
0: you know, uh, get points of reference. Presumably, it's you don't have the management component, or at least it's not as important with real assets. But you've got more assets to to analyze Is it more analytical, um, more mathematical? Is it, or?
1: Well, to be honest, actually, it depends on what stage the underlying assets are so if you're talking about you know metals and mining assets which are pre-production so you're talking about um projects which are in development and pre-construction actually it's i would say less mathematical insofar as you know a lot of the time it is actually about the sponsor diligence you know what experience do they have in taking you know projects from up the development curve into um, construction, you know, so that you can get it to the production, which is the, you know, sort of key value inflection point. So, from that perspective, um, there's actually probably more qualitative aspects on pre production, you know, sort of focus managers where you do need the knowledge of the industry and you do need to know your way around. Hmm. Or you
0: certainly need to know people who know their way around so that you can go and um, reference appropriately. Just to go back to those advertised textbook advantages of secondaries as they relate to real assets, you've already covered off the pricing aspect, which is relatively more competitive. But what about um, your ability to put money to work in this area? And LPs up the up the J curve. Oh, absolutely. Look, I think
1: in terms of that, really on that aspect, it's probably um, parallel to a um, buyout fund. So you know, if you invest into a relatively mature fund, which is beyond its investment period, then you most likely have full visibility into the asset base. I think the slight difference might be that, you know, if there's sort of a project financing type, you know, structure involved, not all the capital, you know, may be drawn down. So it's, say, 100% committed to investments, but say only 65, 70% drawn. So there's still some more capital to be drawn in the underlying Assets to get them up the um, curve. Yeah. Now, I mean, I use the in the natural resources context. I think if you're talking about infrastructure, that's slightly different because you know if you're looking at a general infrastructure fund, whether it's a core fund or core, you know, core core plus value add, then these funds, you know, tend to have a component or a large component of brownfield assets which are already in operation, stabilized. So that is much more like a traditional private equity fund in terms of, um, you know, less. You can do much more cash flow type valuation work to right. ascertain what's going on, but that's a slightly different sub segment in the market where you know if you have good infrastructure names which are you know sort of stabilised assets, then the pricing is reflective of that, and you have some secondary players with lower cost of capital you know who are buying into those deals, so you know they are pretty expensive at the moment.
0: Where does um, secondaries, per se, and your style secondaries, real assets focused secondaries, mm-hmm. sit on, in your experience, on the risk return spectrum vis-a-vis private equity itself? Because it seems to me that with secondaries, you kind of get your cake and eat it. You get, you know, <laughs> you know, you get your money to work, you get yep. your money back quickly, you get a little bit of transparency, yep. it's still private equity. Mm-hmm. So something's got to give. So. Yeah, look, I think on,
1: uh, it, so it really depends on what sub- um, sort of almost asset classes you're buying into. So I think if you're buying into things like um, energy, you know, upstream energy or upstream, you know, metals and mining, then you could get some, you know, pretty um, good outsized returns from secondaries, but you're taking bigger risk in terms of the potential downside. So, you know, the way that we think about it is, okay, you know, the protection comes from the quality of the underlying assets and, you know, the in In price, at the end of the day. So, you know, if we are going to pay up, then the asset base better be very good. Or, you know, if we have doubts over it, you know, or there are some more, you know, uh, potential for some downside risk, then we'll have to cushion it through, you know, price. So being price disciplined is absolutely, I think, critical um, in this market. Whereas if you're looking at, say, some of the more stabilized, you know, core type infrastructure funds, the downside is relatively limited but what you are capped on is depending on the price you go in that your uh you know your returns are um, pretty you know you might yield but your capital gains is going to be limited so at the moment our program in secondaries whether you know it's real assets or on the p side where we do do a bit tends to be on the capital gains focused um, element of it as opposed to yield so you know we're looking for appreciation through both asset growth and through
0: um, the price so you've got to be price disciplined. What's your funnel like compared to, say, a, a primary market funnel? Which, as I understand it, you have a huge amount, a huge unit potential investment sure. universe, and you drill yeah, down yeah. to the one company you want. Presumably, your funnel is narrower within secondaries. But what's go on. yeah?
1: Uh, look, I think the the difference with say primaries versus secondaries is primaries, as you said, there's a wide choice of managers. Now. You have some access constrained managers, so you know, whether you want to get in or not, you, know, you might not even you know, meet the manager. But in general, it is our choice as LPs to go and try and pick and choose which managers you want based on what's out in the market, what strategy you're choosing, and it's really our choice. The difference in secondaries is, especially when you're um, bidding in competitive situations, is that you can put your best foot forward, but someone else might pay more. So, in you know, a long winded way of saying, I mean, in general, my kind of conversion of opportunities to actual investment is probably like in the two to four percent type ratio. So you kiss an awful lot of frogs before you get you know your
0: deals done. I think is the right. best way to put it. I'm interested in the in in the deal flow aspect because in the primary market obviously it's very intermediated in the UK at least yeah. in other markets mm-hmm. it's perhaps more proprietary how does it how do deals come to you typically what are the, what are the ways they come I understand you're sometimes on the other side of a fund sure, as sure well, well but
1: yeah look I mean you know I think we're no different to any other you know person um looking to buy secondary so you know you have you're especially on the fund interest side if you know a very good bench of advisors who've been established for a long time you know and they probably capture the bulk of the market from the fund interest point of view um so you know do we talk to all the advisors absolutely you know where can we find something which um you know might be less uh sort of widely participated you know auction situations well you know that's definitely Sort of being close to your sponsors uh you know having the conversations making sure that if they catch wind of an lp who wants to sell that you're on that list of people that they call um so that's definitely you know sort of a core channel that we're developing and we're working you know with
0: um, all our sponsors to make sure that we're getting you know we're getting those calls uh, so how comfortable are you or the average specialist secondary investor that you are that you're getting all the calls you want to get, or you're on the lists or on the rate. Is it a very kind of transparent market? Because for someone like me, it's not a press-released market, right? So unless uh, you're on the inside, you don't know what's happening.
1: Look, and I think, you know, the usual sponsor actually response to this is, um, most often, they don't even know that an LP wants to sell, because the first time they know, it's an advisor who calls them say, hey, LPX wants to sell, um, you know, and we're advising them. So... You know, how much do we see? look, you know we deal in the general market terms, you know we put min- like a relatively small amount of money to work, so we're not like a multi billion uh secondary guys who see probably a broader um deal flow. you know would I like to see more yes um, and that's something we work on hard to do yeah. um but look, you know our program is still relatively young, so we're building our presence, we're building the message you know. A lot of the times uh, you know you've got to just repeat the same message over and over again so that you know it filters through that's Um, the nature of marketing saying (laughs) the same thing over and over look you know the other thing i just say is obviously you know as well as investing as a secondary we are lps as well right so you know when you talk with other lps you know there's always you know a conversation to be had if the other you know if
0: your fellow lps you know want some liquidity um so what are the main risks in the market today that you're potentially concerned about or at least monitoring and thinking about? In secondaries? In yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, look, I think so. first and foremost is price. Um, you know, some of the aspects today do remind me a little bit pre-crisis where um, it's not only the really good quality names that are being priced high. It's sort of the next tier down, you know, sort of tier two or tier three type deals, which are, I think, expensive because there's a lot of dry powder chasing after um, deals. And so I think it's relatively, um, how can I call it, mediocre quality deals being priced beyond what they should be. So I think the risk reward curve is still, you know, a little bit mismatched at the moment. Um, So I think price discipline is probably the single biggest thing that
0: I look for um, you know, is that okay. how you I mean, add you know. value as a secondary investor? It's, it's looking for the best. It's, it's just a trade-off on price. Is that is how that you um, add?
1: Well, look, you know, where do you, if you think about where do you make your money in secondaries, you know, there's several components. So you know, you're going to make money through, if you get a discount on the price, you could potentially, you know, that's one component of it. But you know, other components of, you know, if you think about it in very basic terms, is what's the quality underlying um, assets. So if your underlying assets grow in value, you know, that is going to drive your future returns. Now, you know, we don't use financing, you know, in a um, debt sense, but obviously a lot of secondary players do. So, you know, if you can overlay price with, you know, underlying sort of quality of assets and then you let, you know, you put in some financial engineering in, you know, those are, I'd say, you know, the three core components that you're looking at in terms of your drivers as a return. So, I mean, look, what I always say, secondaries is not a complicated business. You know, at the end of the day, you're buying a future cash flow stream and what you're prepared to pay for it really
0: comes down to what's
1: your cost of capital.
0: Yeah. So what about um, large external risks, another Kind of global financial crisis. Yeah. What yeah. happens to the <laughs> secondary's market? Which is yeah.
1: Well, that's look. That's an interesting question. So, if you looked at what happened after you know sort of the GFC, I mean, there is you know I think I, I I sort of forget the exact stats, but you know there is one year where the volumes fell you know spectacularly, and I think there was definitely a mismatch going on of you know what buyers were prepared to pay for versus what sellers you know wanted to sell at. Plus, I think there was um, a lot of deals done at the time, which did happen where, for example, people were selling the most recent vintage funds with the largest unfunded commitments. So, you know, people were basically selling their liability as opposed to selling assets. Um, so, you know, could something like that happen? Maybe, you know. The, the shape and the form in which the next, you know, financial crisis, you know, happens is, um, you know, I'll tell you what if you know the answer to that please let me know cuz you know that would be great um but if i knew the answer i don't think i'd be here right <laughs> so from that point of view look you know uh what could happen i think generally speaking in a financial crisis look you know equity fact you know equity values will drop right the public market so what will happen you know valuations will compress you know because most funds are mapped to market you know you're going to have a you know classic sort of quarter on quarter valuation falls so because the secondaries markets priced off the latest nav which when itself is lagged three you know three months then you're gonna get the reverse to where we are today you know where it's a strongly priced market uh, to one where people are pricing in the falls so you know you'll probably find a period where you know um, you have sort of much bigger discounts um, as the market falls now as to, Volumes, that's really difficult to know, you know, you might have some more force sellers. There are very few force sellers today Uh, Mm. So you might have a larger volume of force sellers But you probably have less people who are doing portfolio management because it's not an optimum time to sell Are you gonna have more um, sort of volume from GP led type secondaries where funds get into trouble and they want some sort of solution potentially? Yes, you know, so if they can't sell their underlying portfolio companies, they run up to the end of their fund term, then that's a classic situation where GP-led secondaries, I think, will kick in. So
0: um, so today we're, we've got a stri- market driven by strategic sellers, proactive sellers that are looking to optimise their portfolio. Is that an accurate characterization of what's happening now in the market?
1: Uh, look, I think um, it's certainly not a market... On the LP side of the trade, that's being driven by forced sellers. Um, but look, the reason why people want to sell are, quite frankly, enormously varied. And it just depends from organization to organization. So, you know, some people may want liquidity. You know, you have situations often now where there's a CIO change. And so the CIO, you know, the new CIO wants to change the direction. So, you know, let's, uh, you know, um, optimize the portfolio to do something else, you know. We also have, you know, many situations now where people, whether they're, you know, pension funds, endowments or funder funds, you know, secondary funds, who are decided, look, we have a huge tail of, uh, you know, tail end portfolio of old vintage funds, which are becoming an administrative burden. You know, there's relatively little nav, the admin for a small team is large. Let's look to optimize these. So um, that's something you know, it really varies
0: from institution to institution. To try and round this all off, the, the last ten or fifteen years in the secondaries market has, has been kind of astonishing in terms of its growth mm-hmm. and in, in the growth of its complexity as well. Large kind of external risks like financial crises mm-hmm. aside, where's this heading? Do you have a sense of <laughs> how large the secondary's market could get, say in relation to the private equity market itself?
1: It's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, I mean, for my kind of two cents worth, people generally talk about sort of like 2 to 5% of commitments made in any fund naturally turning over over the course of time into the secondaries market. Now, I think if you look at the stats, you know, we're still below those types of thresholds so does the market have I think room to grow just from its natural evolution of sort of portfolio management you know sort of change strategy um, you know I think there is and especially because if you look at the market what started off you know being very private equity centric, you know now you have much more sort of infrastructure deals or energy deals or real estate deals coming through you know this private credit and i think you know the all of these generally are closed-end finite life vehicles and so as people get more comfortable with secondaries in these kind of other sub-asset classes i think the secondary steel flow in those will grow so you know is there across the board volume growth i think yes and i think the other one is the gp-led secondaries i think are here to stay now there's probably going to be some you know ones which go south and you know there'll be um it might give people some pause for thought but at the end of the day in a closed-end structure there always needs to be some sort of solution somewhere and you know the secondaries market is the flexible solution provider for it and i think it's going to keep morphing into um in different structures you know different types of deals with different end investors you know who can match uh, sort of the opportunity to
0: their cost of capital. Naoki thank you very much for sparing your time. Ross
1: it's been a pleasure thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast make sure you subscribe and visit our website fund-shack.com for many more video interviews it's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.